All right, let's go anywhere in Hebrews. Hint. Tonight and Sunday, and from now until an undisclosed time, we'll be devoted to the study of Hebrews 2020. Hebrews 2020. And I've been kind of moving that way even in DLT. I've done what I want to do in 15 hours of doing and living theology. I've done what I wanted to do and that's going to carry on. That that theme will carry on through a largely theological exposition of the epistle or we could call it the sermon called Hebrews. And I've found some things out about why this is necessary and important to teach right now. Also, the doctrine of the mystery, I've done all that I want to do with that for now. That doesn't mean we're ever we're done on teaching the doctrine of the mystery, but we've evened out with all the cancellations and everything. It's 15 and 15. And it just happens to be that our last word, the last word I uttered in theological exegesis doing in living theology last Wednesday was to tell us die. And I didn't design that to be that way, but that's the last word it means finished. And I do believe in coincidence because a coincidence is just an co incident with another incident that Providence arranged. All right. Let's take a couple moments of silent prayer because we're kicking off a serial of increments. And you'll be able to take notes tonight because I can't use my tablet. So I'm just going to tear everything up. I'm just now let's 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 have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we stand on the verge of yet another series of teachings. And we think about how we felt at the outset of Rev the Book, the outset of John's Gospel, the outset of Better Call Paul, the outset of reading Romans with the light on. We There was a certain anticipation, and I know tonight that that anticipation comes from the spirit of grace as we approach the study of Hebrews as a local assembly. And we look forward to this with great anticipation, with a little bit of, in my case, fear and trembling. And we commit ourselves to you. As we undertake this endeavor, I present myself to you for this endeavor also and ask that it will be done all to the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom rightly belongs the glory both now and forever. We do so in his name. Amen. A couple of things about the series that you'll understand what I'm doing here. I'm calling it Hebrews 2020. The title of the series is We See Jesus. It's a key phrase in the key proposition of the epistle. 
We can call it an epistle. You can call it a letter, a treatise, a, an orator, oratorical sermon. Whatever you want to call it, it's a masterpiece. And I'm going to do it instead of lesson one, lesson two, message one, message two. I'm going to do increment one. And almost every title is going to have a Greek phrase in it without the transliteration. That'll give you something to do or something to be curious about. It'll be a phrase that may not have to do with that increment of Hebrews. It'll be probably from Hebrews or something relevant to Hebrews somewhere. And so each, it will go Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus increment one, then a phrase, then the date. In this series for the first time, I will not be making a whole lot of parenthetical insertions of verses. The writer of Hebrews didn't do it. And he almost assumed that his audience could fill them in. You can fill them in yourself. I'll be paraphrasing things as we go along. Sometimes I'll be including partial verses or whole verses. And I'm not, in many cases, going to put what I usually do, parenthetical inserts in or even mention them in the message. And the substance of the message will get through that way, and you can have your own exercise, especially I'm going to do as much as I can what we've always been doing, the written form, which is the, in my view, the final form and the most important form it should take. Although... There is the supplement of the spoken word where a lot of times we innovate. A lot of times we are extemporaneous or even spontaneous and do we call an audible, as they say in football. Depending on how the defensive line is lined up, we may have to call something at the last minute and do something different. So the spoken message may differ from the written notes. Usually I don't save the written notes for the next time. I just put it out because I've already written them two times a week has been pretty much the norm so far, but the study for two times is much more intense for me, more prolonged and harder work to be done to prepare for these things. Cause each message or each increment of this is going to be, I take more seriously than I've ever taken before. Little increment one, and I'll explain this because I want you to know what I'm doing here. You're my friends, and a friend tells his friends what he's doing. So God said to Abraham, it's what Jesus said to his disciples. So Hebrews 2020 will be taught in a series of increments, each increment being a single, small augmentation or increase in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom we see crowned with glory and honor. And it will be my intention through this series that we see him ultimately with 2020 vision. The very definition of increment, I-N-C-R-E-M-E-N-T, of course, has to do with increase or even with augmentation. My pastoral intent, which I like to announce at the beginning of every series, book series, my pastoral intent is that we all increase or grow in grace 
and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory now and to the day of eternity. Now and to the day of eternity. We hear on news networks of a phenomenon called breaking news. And that's with the intention that the audience prepares itself for something striking or something new or something perhaps expected or unexpected. Well, my breaking expectation as we break into this series is for this series of contributions, each message will be, each increment will be, to cause us to rejoice and to be practically complete, to be of good comfort and of one mind, to live in peace. My intent is that the God of love and peace will be with us in ways that are manifested to all and truly experienced by us as we grow with all the universal body and with an awareness of all the universal body of Christ as it builds itself up in love. My prayer is that this will not be just another commentary, but a series of breaking news items that continually awaken us and reawaken us so that Christ really shines on us and so that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ will continually shine into our hearts and then radiate from them so that people will say, we see Jesus when they see you. Increments, by their very definition, are often barely perceptible. This is what the kingdom of God is like. They are barely perceptible additions or augmentations. Nevertheless, they are additions. And by them, we're diligently supplementing our faith with virtue, with personal acquaintance with our great high priest, with self-control with perseverance, with true spirituality, with brotherly and sisterly affection, most of all with love. As these increments are implanted in our hearts and minds, and as they're watered by the water of the word, God will give the increase. And we will grow as we hold on to the head from whom the whole body develops as God causes it to grow. Our increase, paradoxically, will be the increase of Christ in us and the decrease of the reign of the old self. The kingdom of God is a realm mediated by the reality that is Jesus. So let each of these increments be a seed planted in good soil, a seed that grows first the blade, then the head, then the head full of grain. Jesus said that's what the kingdom of God is like. 
A man plants seeds. He lives, he sleeps, he rests, he looks out his window and it grows. He doesn't know how, because it's God giving the increase. We continue in the word, increment by increment, and the growth happens. We don't know how, other than knowing that God gives the increase. So let's hear each word as if it's breaking news. And let's let it sink down in our ears and find root in the depths of our heart. Even as I say these things, I'm aware of their importance, the importance of this, this sermon, this epistle, this treatise, this letter, or this letter that contains a sermon. Let's hear with the trained ears of disciples. Let's test each word with discerning palates. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. For our Lord, Jesus, by the grace of God, has tasted death for every person of the human race. We will be tasting of the good word of God and of the dynamics that will be universally in play in the age to come. Let's be attentive to the Lord who by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding established the heavens by whose knowledge the watery depths broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Let's not let the things we hear and receive drift away from our consciousness. But let's be all the more attentive, especially given that perilous times have come. And the pull to drift away is now a rip current. In deciding to teach and preach Hebrews, I decided upon a joyous but really a daunting task. To stay with the journalistic metaphor of breaking news, my calling has been, and the best way I can describe it now, is that I've always lived for 41 years under deadline pressure. The pressure to meet a deadline. For over four decades. That's what's made the difference in my livingness before becoming a pastor and after becoming a pastor. There's always a deadline. This never ceases. It's always there. For there's always before me another hour which I must proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. This deadline means that we who preach Christ and who teach and mourn others and ourselves always carry in our bodies the dying of Jesus. That's the pressure of the deadline. This deadline pressure works in those of us who preach and who teach in the word of God, the word so that life will work in our hearers. Under this deadline, I will teach Hebrews. Under this constant deadline pressure, we will all continue until Christ is formed in us. Until the life of Jesus is more and more seen in our mortal bodies 
For the life we live in the flesh is a life lived by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved us, gave himself for us, and is raised and exalted at God's right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for us and to save us to the uttermost. So this upcoming series of increments will be entitled We See Jesus. It is entered with the hope that we will see him clearly with 2020 vision. Hence Hebrews 2020. And by the spirit of the Lord, we will with opened and unveiled faces and hearts gaze as in a mirror at him and be changed from glory to glory into his image by the spirit of the Lord. This is why we teach and preach and warn. And there's a lot of warnings in this one. And this is why we hear and persevere in what we hear. I like what the great German theologian Jürgen Moltmann did over the course of his career, beginning as a pastor in the early 50s. While not claiming to write a definitive systematic theology, which he evidently deemed as too lofty a goal, He offered instead a series of what he called contributions to theology. That's such a relaxing notion to someone who wants to do theology. And this is all that one man or one woman can do in a lifetime. As Bernard Lonergan, the great Canadian theologian, taught, one can only contribute over the course of one's lifetime a relatively small donation to the pool of human knowledge. For me, I'd call it the widow's might. Even though both Lonergan and Moltmann each contributed what I would consider to be a great deal to the fund of theological knowledge. Our study of Hebrews will not be and indeed cannot be, and this is the danger of the arrogance of the teacher, you want to make the definitive and final and classic commentary on Hebrews. Not going to be that. Can't be. Can't be the decisive theological exegesis of this epistle even though both ancient modern commentators have done wonderful and splendid jobs on it. Hebrews is the most mysterious as far as author, as far as audience, and sometimes even as far as date, although I have my own theory and I'm going to make it presentable to you about who it addressed. And I also think that there is mystery about it because of the divine intention that it would be just exactly as fitting to the 21st century as to the first. Because we've come into an urgency in history that is equal to the urgency that just preceded the destruction of Jerusalem 
in 70 AD or AD 70. And so we'll be dealing a lot with the AD 70 trajectory that is very vital in throughout the entire New Testament. And I think also vital to the interpretation of Hebrews. With the enlightenment and enablement of the spirit of grace, ours will be a small contribution. Ours together I'm talking about. A small contribution to the understanding of this God-breathed masterpiece, which itself exists today as a set of lenses through which we may have a 2020 vision of Jesus. Hebrews provides a set of lenses through which we may have a 2020 clear view of the ark of Jesus. More accurately, this study of Hebrews will be an exhortation to us. Now, an exhortation includes, and this is my definition, exhortation, as it's called, is the impartation of both negative and positive incentives. The negative incentives are warnings that make you extremely uncomfortable. They make me extremely uncomfortable. I fear and try, I, I exceedingly fear and quake, like Moses said at Sinai. Instead of just trying to explain away, there's some severity in the warnings in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. In fact, the writer calls after finishing this sermon, finishing this piece in Hebrews 13, 22, I'll mention that. He calls it a brief word of exhortation. People say, well, there's exhortations in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, and Hebrews 6, 1 to 4, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 39, and Hebrews 12. The exhortations that I see in Hebrews are extended way beyond what I've seen any commentator say. That's a hortatory passage or that's a exhortational passage. The whole epistle is one. There's a lot of doctrine, a lot of exposition, a very high, as it should be, high Christology, a very high view of Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't stand for it if it wasn't. And so he calls it a brief word of exhortation. If it were a sermon, it would be about an hour. You can read it and say you get into about Hebrews 9, you say, well, he's about 35 minutes in here. It's one sermon. But we can fan it out in a way that, well, it might just be one or two hundred increments. Who knows? What was Revelation? Five hundred. So it will be an exhortation to us who are urged to persevere in faith in the perilous times that have come with the 21st century, just as it was to those readers and hearers of this sermon in the perilous time that they inhabited in the first century. If our goal is to present a sequence of increments in a theological exegesis of Hebrews, instead of attempting to produce some classic commentary, the study can be steadily fruitful and offer insight after insight 
Our study together can be a source of joy. After all, when the sense of the scripture is conveyed and understanding is granted, the people find joy. They find, in fact, that the joy of the Lord is their strength for living. Their power for coping and for overcoming in times when doctrines of demons are attracting the inattentive. And those who are suffering from neophilia, like the Athenians whom Paul encountered on Mars Hill, and who, according to Luke, spent all their time talking or hearing about something new or novel. Neophilia, a disease that wants something new kind of thought the scriptures are old, that the scriptures have already been tapped. There's nothing else to be discovered in them. So let's go find things in writers from the ancient East or writers in the present East or philosophy, mysticism of all kinds, Acts 17, 21. So they said to Paul, what new thing have you got? And he said, I got something new, all right. How about resurrection of a man named Jesus who is going to judge the world in righteousness? They laughed it off, most of them. Except for Dionysius and one other disciple. Commentaries on Hebrews can be found in red, which have been written by Origen in the patristic era. Thomas Aquinas of the 13th century by John Owens of the Reformation era, and by recent and living scholars by, like Atridge, Lane, Coaster, and many others. I have access to many of these. So I hope to glean from many who have done the hard work of research, as always. Studies like Fleming Rutledge's The Crucifixion and Lonergan's The Redemption draw heavily on this epistle for insight into the meaning of the death of Jesus Christ and its astounding implications. As Aquinas wrote, quote, Humility makes us honor others and esteem them better than ourselves insofar as we see some of God's gifts in them. And that's extraordinarily important. We can find comments on Hebrews not only in his commentary on that book, Aquinas's, but also throughout Summa Theologica, for example, on question 46, article 10, part 3, and in his reply to objection 2, Aquinas gives the first of three reasons why Christ suffered outside the gate. Tonight's Greek phrase that will be increment one is exotes paremboles, outside the camp. Exotes paramboles outside the camp. In his first reason why Jesus Christ suffered outside the gate or back in that language without the gate, he says this, for three reasons Christ suffered outside the gate and not in the temple nor in the city. First of all, that the truth might correspond with the figure for the calf and the goat were offered in most solemn sacrifice for expiation on behalf of the entire multitude were burnt outside the camp, that is the encampment of Israel, 
as commanded in Leviticus 16.27. Hence it is written, Aquinas writes, with brackets around Hebrews 13.11, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the holies by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp, meaning outside the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people by his own blood, suffered without the gate or outside the gate. The gate of Jerusalem, the camp of Israel. So this phrase, without or outside the gate, is of great importance in Hebrews. And Hebrews makes you used to living there. It is of great importance in Hebrews, mainly because the addressees of this letter, I'll call it a letter sermon, are all being called to go outside of the gate to suffer reproach with Christ, who was crucified outside the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Outside the gate is comparable to outside the camp in Leviticus or outside the encampment or the military bivouac of Israel in the wilderness, in its travels in the desert in no man's land. It is there where the bodies of the sacrificial animals whose blood is brought into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle by the high priest for sin, those bodies are burned outside the camp. And it's outside the gate of the city of then apostate second temple Jerusalem that Jesus was crucified. It is there where he endured the cross and the reproach of people. Outside the encampment is also where Rahab was taken. Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho. In all of Hebrews 11, where the examples of faith are given, hers is the most significant testimony. And I I believe that Rahab is the key to interpret who the addressees of this epistle are. But for now, I'll give you some hints. Outside the encampment is where Rahab was taken. Only Rahab and all who were with her in her house were spared when Jericho and everything in it was completely destroyed. As an offering to the Lord, it says in Joshua 6.17. Oddly enough, strange, as an offering to the Lord. When the city had been utterly destroyed and its inhabitants were put to death without mercy. Joshua 6.21. Then searchers went in. And got Rahab, they knew who she was by the scarlet rope that hung from her window. Rahab and her father and mother and her brothers and all her possessions 
And they brought out her and her whole family and took them to a safe place outside the camp. Exo tes paramboles, precisely the same phrase used in Hebrews 13, 11, and 13. Outside the encampment of Israel, she and her family were spared because she hid and kept safe the spies whom Joshua had sent to do a recon of Jericho before the conquest. Hebrews 11.31 says that she did this by faith. Piste, P-I-S-T-E-I. And because of this, she did not die along with the disbelieving. She did not die along with the disbelieving. The author very tellingly says in 1132, after he gets through Rahab's testimony, he said, and what more can I say? What more can I say? He's just given us the key to interpret, I think, at least good possibility of just who's being addressed here. She and her family were spared because of faith, her faith. It is with Rahab the prostitute that we are close to an interpretation of the practical intent of the author of Hebrews. Like Paul's epistle to the Romans, Habakkuk 2.4 plays prominently in Hebrews. But unlike Romans, the Hebrews author applies this verse, the faith, the just shall live by faith. He applies this verse to faith being the means of the survival of a disaster. And a death like the destruction of Jericho and the merciless deaths of its inhabitants. How shall we escape? The author says in the first exhortation, how shall we escape what if we neglect this so great salvation? Our previous studies in John and Revelation, better call Paul and Romans, will be extremely helpful in our study of Hebrews. We'll have a different take on Hebrews than anybody else ever has in the world. You know why? Because we did better call Paul first and Romans first and John first. And those other commentators might have been doing something else first. So they have their own unique take. And I'm not comparing us. The AD 70 trajectory, which I've been calling it, that bears upon much of the New Testament is, in my view, extraordinarily vital to the interpretation of Hebrews, especially in its plentiful Hortatory, get used to that word, hortatory, which means exhortational, or a hortatory passage, also known as paranetic, P-A-R-A-E-N-E-T-I-C, paranetic passages, are a combination of negative incentives and positive incentives. 
to listeners. And there are many hortatory passages. There are also, what I love about Hebrews is that the hortatory passages are co-hortatory. Co, C-O-H-O-R-T-A-T-O-R-Y. Because you know what co-hortatory is? Let us do this. Let's do this. Not you do this. Let's do this. Let's look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's do this. Let's go on to perfection, to completion, if God permits. It's always cohortatory. He's a pastor who leads from the front, but he includes himself in his exhortation. I love that. The reason I love that is because I love to do that. Let's do this. Not you do this. Let's do this. So Hebrews, especially in its plentiful hortatory or co-hortatory content, and specifically in the controversial ones, and the very uncomfortable ones, like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, in those it may be that we will hear a voice from heaven from John's apocalypse. I said, hear a voice from heaven from John's apocalypse which says this, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out from her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sinfulness or receive any of her plagues. This very word, a voice from heaven, come out from her, meaning in that case, the apostate Jerusalem, the whore of Babylon. is echoing in the climactic warning of Hebrews, which is 1225. See to it that you don't make excuses to him who speaks. For if they did not escape when they made excuses to him who warned them on earth, it is even less likely that we will escape if we reject him when he warns from Heaven. And so I'll close with this. You may ask, escape what? It starts out the first exhortation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And I would say, escape what? Well, think of Jericho. Or think of the thousands of God's people who died in the desert and who remain to this day as a warning to those of us who have arrived in what the Hebrew calls Akarit Hayamim. That's A-C-H-A-R-I-T in transliteration, dash H-A-Y-A-M-I-M. Akarit Hayamim. It's where you are right now. It's a phrase that's used, at least I saw, 21 times in the whole of the Bible, 14 in the Old Testament, 7 in the New. The equivalent in the Greek is Tatele ton eonion. Tatele 
ta, T-A, tele, T-E-L-E. First E is epsilon, second is eta. Ton, aeonion, or aeonon, which means the closing days of history. The closing days of history. First time it's used is way back in Genesis 49 when Jacob's talking to his sons and he said, this is what's going to happen to you in the closing days of history. The closing days of history. God who spoke in times past to the ancestors in the prophets has in these last days at the close of history spoken to us in a son whom he appointed to be heir over all things, heir of all things, inherit of all things, by whom he created the universe, who is the very radiance of God's glory, God's Shekinah, and the very impress of God's substance. And in this study, we're going to go beyond the metaphysics of substance, where God is perceived as the substance or the essence because a substance doesn't love a subject loves subjects love not substance and we'll see that the self revelation of God is the same as the self dedication of God to us that from Moltmann's latest book, but we'll see this. So again, I'll say escape. What? Well, think of Jericho. Rahab escaped and ended up outside the camp. Or think of the thousands of God's people. I'll give you a hint. Read first Corinthians 10, one to 11 or 10, one to 21. Really? Those people of God, God's own people, with unbelieving hearts, who died in the desert and remain to this day as a warning to us who have arrived at the Akarit Hamayim. Paul called it the closing days of history, 1 Corinthians 10.11. Hebrews is a sermon that will make you feel uncomfortable at times. So you'll be tempted to make excuses. The practical problem was revealed in one place in Hebrews 10.25, the forsaking of the assembling of themselves together. Like I said, the pull to drift today is a rip current. If you ever go to the beach and you have a sign that says rip current, you know, don't go out far. Don't go far. Because you could end up two miles out before you know it and you can't swim back. Somebody's got to come and rescue you or you got to figure out how to swim back in a rip current. Rip currents are not fun. Some people know how to swim back after getting out there. But kind of rare. Hebrews is a sermon that'll make you feel uncomfortable at times. And it's strong meat. 
and it may be unpalatable to those who seek a safe space in this world. There is no safe space in this world. There is no safe space in this evil age, except when you take refuge in Christ. And then you don't fear those who kill the body, but have no way to kill the soul. Hebrews is a sermon that will make you feel uncomfortable at times. I'll start off by warning you about it. And then when it happens, I won't apologize because I feel un- I've already felt extremely uncomfortable reading Hebrews honestly. Not trying to take Kenneth Weiss' way out that it's just hypothetical. It's not just hypothetical in Hebrews 6. It's not hypothetical. Which would empty it of any warning. I'm just going to tell you something that will never happen to you, but here it is. So don't be afraid because it can never happen to you. Well, what's the use of writing it then? So I will close again to say it's strong meat. And it might be inedible or unpalatable or disgusting for those who seek a safe space in this world to hide from reality. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to find a safe place or a safe space. I like to have one when I study. But I'm talking about people who seek a safe space to escape and hide from reality. From attentiveness, from responsibility, from reasonableness. Such people may make excuses that they really don't have the time in their busy schedule or the inclination to hear such a sermon or any sermon at all for that matter. Hebrews is a sermon. Takes an hour to read it, takes an hour to preach it. You can read it straight through. Time yourself. Read it carefully, but time yourself. How long does it take you to read it? How long will it take increment by increment for us to get through with it? I plan on being a serial killer of my own flesh. Each series, each increment, the old man mortified and put off, his reign put away, the new man put on. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to kick off a new series. And may each increment be truly received as breaking news, not that it's news that we haven't heard before about a person that we've never heard of, but so that each time we meet, it will be a clearer presentation of him a clearer representation of him so that we see Jesus. In John, the Greeks who came said we would see Jesus. In Hebrews, we see him. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity.